This episode is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Jimmy Dore Show, The Tom Hartman Program, The David Feldman Show, The Majority Report, Counterspin, The Young Turks, The Daily Show, and Moyers and Company. And a reminder to not let yourself get tricked into defending Obamacare. Remember, it has a lot of problems and is just a stepping stone to single-payer. This week, pre-enrollment began to sign up for health insurance under the Affordable Care Act. On the first day, the federal website was visited by 2.8 million people, also known as takers. (laughs) (laughs) As expected, there were numerous glitches, which Republicans claim proves we must get rid of Obamacare. By that logic, we should also get rid of computers. (laughs) Throughout the country, thousands of inquiries quickly overwhelmed the system. But it was still more pleasant than going to the DMV to have your driver's license picture taken. (laughs) Here in California, there were also glitches, and some visitors to the website ended up with tickets to a Clippers game. (laughs) The success of Obamacare will greatly depend on young, healthy people buying insurance, though many of them may be too busy twerking. (laughs) Experts say Americans may yet warm up to the new law, except for those who hate Obama so much they will let themselves get sick and die just out of spite. (laughs) Not coincidentally this week, conservative lawmakers shut down the government in order to prevent millions of future voters from being grateful to a black man. (laughs) Republicans no longer discuss what to replace Obamacare with, except to say that Americans have nothing to worry about as long as they've accepted Jesus Christ as their personal savior. Your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who cares, your own personal Jesus, someone to hear your prayers, someone who's there. And welcome back to our second hour, Trader Joe's, the chain of stores that are generally considered relatively progressive, and they've got kind of you know cool health foodie stuff. Uh, they've announced that they're dropping health care for part-time workers and instead giving them a $500 annual check. This has conservatives screaming that we're all going to be paid for the cost of health care for low-income workers, and has liberals scratching their heads. At the same time, the AFL just passed a resolution yesterday essentially saying that they don't like the possibility that Obamacare may decouple health care from the workplace. Now, that actually makes sense because one of the major benefits that unions offer is that they negotiate for, or sometimes themselves offer, health care. And when health care is available to everybody, it slightly diminishes the value of being in a union. Or at least unions have to figure out new ways to add value to union membership. I see all these things as healthy developments. Here's the backstory: after after World War II, the labor market in the United States was really tight. A lot of the soldiers, uh, a lot of our, uh, you know, our our workforce was principally male, and a couple hundred thousand of them, I believe it was seven hundred. I don't I don't remember the I, I shouldn't quote a number because I don't I don't remember the number of people who died in World War II. The um, you know American soldiers, but hundreds of thousands died, and a lot of the people who had come back instead of looking for a job were going to college on the GI Bill. So the labor market was really tight. Employers were competing for workers. 
And so the unions and the big businesses both opposed a national single health, uh, single payer, uh, healthcare program that was proposed by Harry Truman. Instead, the employers and unions agreed that they could use the offering of health care as a benefit, as a way of attracting and keeping employees in union shops. So, you know, this worked out well for both the unions and the employers. And the employees got something out of it, too. They got health care from their employer via negotiation with their union. But in the years since 1981, when Ronald Reagan declared war on working people in America, Unions have been broken to a third of their former size. And health care as a benefit has been steadily vanishing out of the American workplace. So here comes Obamacare, right? the Affordable Care Act. And what it is beginning is the process of ensuring that every American has access to health care. They'll have it regardless of where they're employed, regardless of how fully they're employed, regardless even of if they are employed. A portion of the American workforce, estimates range from 15% to as high as 40%, are fundamentally unhappy with where they work. But they stay there simply because their employer offers them health insurance. These people are not stepping out into the world. They're not starting their own businesses. They're not moving to jobs where they might be happier, where they might even have better opportunities. They're not doing that because they're locked into place and a crummy job or a job they don't like by the fear of losing health insurance. Workers in countries that have universal health care, which includes virtually all of the developed world except us, don't have this problem, which help explain in part why so many of the developed world's economies are so much more vibrant than ours is currently. I mean, yeah, I know Greece is a basket case, but that has to do with the euro. That doesn't have to do, and the European Union doesn't have to do with health care. Actually, they're, they're doing, you know, it's, Let's not go down that rabbit hole. Anyhow, as Reaganomics, if you look at the, at the northern European countries, they're doing just fine. As Reaganomics and globalization over the past 30 years have decimated the American workforce and loosened the American labor market, the ability to have access to health care has become more and more tightly tied to being an employee of a particular company. But because Obamacare lowers the cost of health care for pretty much everybody making under $80,000 a year, makes it almost free for most Americans, uh, at least householder Americans, making under $40,000 a year. Because it does that, it weakens the hold that both the employers and the unions have on the employees. The flip side of this is that it makes it easier for workers to go out and start businesses or move to a place of employment where they feel more fulfilled, even though that employer may not offer health insurance. You know, Republicans will tell you this with a lot of regret, but Obamacare, I mean, they're, they're just like crazy about this, but Obamacare really is a major step down the road to universal health care, and in my opinion, a very good step down that road. And as health care becomes more connected to your being a citizen of the United States, as opposed to being an employee of a particular corporation or a member of a particular union, Americans become more free. This is the freedom that Franklin Roosevelt talked about. The freedom from fear and want. Trader Joe's, I believe, gets it. Their part-time workers make low enough income 
that they're going to qualify for free or nearly free health care under Obamacare. So with a $500 annual bonus, they can easily buy their own health insurance. I, and frankly, the only reason more employers won't be taking similar steps is that Trader Joe's is one of the very, very few companies in America that offers health benefits to their part-time workers. But with Obamacare, all part-time workers in America are going to have access to free or very inexpensive health insurance, and thus they're more free to choose the employment or entrepreneurial adventure that suits them best. I mean, it, clearly the next logical step in this process is universal health care, single payer. Obamacare allows individual states to offer that starting in 2016, and Vermont has already passed it through their legislature and signed it by their governor, Peter Shumlin. I predict that once Vermont starts a successful single-payer experiment, other states are going to follow over the next few years, just like Canadian provinces did one after the other when Saskatchewan began a single-payer health insurance program. And that's going to be a good thing for America. As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. The private insurance industry currently takes 31 cents of every dollar, of every health care dollar premium that they collect, out of actual patient care. That money is used for overhead, as you mentioned, marketing, exorbitant CEO salaries, administrative costs. We know that the private insurance industry's administrative waste is much, much higher than Medicare, which we can talk about in, uh, uh, a right. little bit later. And insurance companies consider that uh, what they spend on patients, they call that the medical loss ratio which is, says something when they, the money that we're paying to take care of us, they can view that as a loss. So the idea is that for individual plans, the insurance companies now have to spend 80 cents of every dollar on actual patient care. So they can only take 20 cents of every dollar away instead of 31 cents. For small businesses uh, and other plans, they can actually only take 15 cents of every dollar away. The idea is that more money will actually be used for patient care. But because the Affordable Care Act has no provision to prevent insurance companies from raising rates, they can figure out, well, I need to make this absolute amount, and if I can only take 20 cents of every dollar, I'm just going to charge a little bit more because there's no regulation on their ability to char regulate rates. And then the federal government says you can only pay 8% of your annual salary towards health care. Otherwise, you then qualify for federal subsidies. Correct. So it would be the federal government picking up the slack there and corporate welfare for the insurance companies basically, right? Right. So here's the thing about New York. Prime example. So everyone was touting that New York had this, they opened the exchange and a lot of premiums were 50% lower than what they had been the year before. 
The idea was the that, exchanges have opened in New York. Well, I mean, well, this is anticipation of them oh, opening okay. in 2014. A lot of people are starting to show the prices. Covered California, which is the exchange for California, announced the participating insurance plans and the prices there. They are actually quite quite uh, reasonable, and and this was a big headline in the New York Times uh, two weeks ago that showed that the individual market the cost would be cut by in half by 50 percent for the individual market. What people don't realize is that's really predicated on the individual mandate really enforcing people, particularly young people, to participate. Because unless the young, lower-risk, healthy people come in to spread out the risk, the premiums, that's the only way the premiums are coming down. That's what the insurance industry is banking on. Now, people did a, a, a study that most, the most any individual will have to pay as a penalty in New York City for not participating on the exchange is $695. And how is that enforced? That's the thing. That's what people don't realize that the... Are you expect to enforce is if somebody comes into the emergency room and doesn't have health insurance, do you report them to here's the Obama the, Here's police? the biggest sort of house of card problem with the Affordable Care Act in terms of the individual mandate, which you brilliantly touched upon. There is no enforcement mechanism. If you read the bill... The top experts have said there's absolutely no enforcement mechanism. So that, that, that is something that needs to be... The individual- well, that's how it got passed, huh? <laughs> the individual mandate says everybody in America has to buy health insurance. Roberts, the chief justice of the Supreme Court, says that's a tax, so it's constitutional. Everybody has to go out and buy a product. They have to buy health insurance or have health insurance through their or plan. have health insurance but but the actual if you really carefully read this and there have been several people that have actually published essays on it there is no enforcement mechanism there it sounds good but there's nothing that says the IRS has to come after you and put a lien on your wages or anything along okay. those lines so the idea is that if everybody has to buy health insurance then young people are covering the costs for old people and profits for the insurance companies will go up because more people are buying health insurance. And if the profits go up, supposedly the premiums go down. What, what in history has ever shown that health insurance companies will lower their premiums because they're making a killing. They won't. And I will say one other thing. If it, Can you, other than the military-industrial complex and maybe the prison complex, over the last 10 years during the worst recession that we've ever had in, in our lifetimes, can you think of any other industry that had double-digit increases in price and profit year after year after year during the heat of the recession? No, right? Uh, the the health insurance industry was one such industry. So the health insurance industry, there's no cap on their profits, even though they're supposed to spend 80% on the patients. They can make as much as they want under Obamacare. Correct. And they can charge as much as they want, and the federal government will pick up the slack for people who can't pay those premiums, which means that the insurance companies are going to raise their premiums because they can get away with it. They're not going to treat health insurance companies like a utility. No regulation. 
Well, the insurance industry will argue that they're getting more regulation because they're having to cover more things. Uh, and, and sort of the golden days of taking 31 cents is no longer there, that 20 cents is a huge burden and a regulation on them. The, the problem is this. You've, you've outlined what still sounds like a pretty nice sweetheart deal for the insurance industry. Right. Yeah. There's no public option to compete with them. All right. And when you have and to define public option, please. So the public option was th- the idea that because insurance companies don't always play nice, that there would be a government run health care plan. Let's say there was Medicare that would be on the exchange. So you and I could choose, do I want to go with Blue Cross or, or Kaiser or Aetna, or do I want to take the government plan? And the idea with the government plan was, rather than uh, raising prices to satisfy shareholders in return, that whatever money they made, they would keep pouring it back into the system to keep premiums low for the following year, a true not-for-profit. But don't they, in the exchanges, don't all the consumers have to be offered a not-for-profit insurance plan well that but not for profit when it's non-government is very misleading but but let's backtrack for one second doctor according to obamacare when you're shopping for health insurance Mm -hmm. one of the choices you have to be offered is a non-profit health insurance group correct right but non-profit and health insurance are, are 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 really the contradiction yes i in the sense that this I'll just explain two two things. Kaiser is not-for-profit. If you saw recently, they were uh, featured as having raising premiums just as much, if not more, than a lot of the private insurers. But Kaiser was the basis of Hillary Care, right? Right, right. right. They, I mean, that's the gold well, we, standard. And again, we can we and it and it's to some extent the basis of the accountable care organizations that exist within the Affordable Care Act. That it's encouraging specialties to come together to form a sort of a pseudo HMO. So you're saying that the government can run health insurance better than a nonprofit can. Correct. Which goes counter to what every Republican will tell you. Correct. And and there's actually data to that. So uh, independent of an ideological slant, which is what I always say to people, is let's take a step back and look at the data. There's been lots of publications. Um, uh, most recently, Kip Sullivan, who is a, a physician and also economist at the, in Minnesota, published a paper showing that the administ- true administrative costs for Medicare were 1.4 percent versus 16 percent for the private insurance industry. Right. And that's that, a fact. That's, yeah, that's, that's a fact. Undeniable. That, that's undeniable. And and so and and I would argue Medicare would actually function better had it not been jeopardized by the, both the Republicans and Democrats in the in the House and Senate. Starting with back in 1995, during the original budget battle, everyone said Medicare was going to go broke. Uh, the Republicans at that point wanted to sh- put 20% of all seniors who are on Medicare on Medicare HMOs or a privatized version. And they said over the next seven uh, years it would save you know, uh, $200 billion. Well, f- fast forward, it's actually cost over $277 billion more to do that because you had a for-profit entity that was being less efficient taking care of these people so than traditional Medicare. So part of Medicare has been privatized. Correct. And that was the argument with the whole Paul Ryan thing with the Obama's trying to cut Medicare. He was just trying to finally say to the Medicare HMOs that we're, we're going to pay you the same thing we pay everyone else with Medicare because you have not shown better outcomes and you've only uh, cost more money than what what the traditional Medicare plan can do. Plus, we also know that... Excuse Medi- me, for, I'm sorry to interrupt. Yeah. 
So you're saying that under Obamacare, they're taking back Medicare from the HMOs? Well, that was the original plan. And here's the... here's the. But they're not doing that. Well, here's where you start to realize that sometimes you don't have Democrats and Republicans, you have corporatists. Yeah. Because the plan was that in 2013, starting this year, that they were going to start to cut reimbursements to Medicare HMOs. And, and, and doing so, that was going to be, begin the savings of that $877 billion that, you know, that Ryan and Romney kept saying, oh, he's cutting Medicare by that much. But what did Sebelius announce last month? That they She's were, Health and Human Services. Health and Human Services Secretary. That instead of cutting it like they said they were going to do, they're going to reward them and give them a 3.5% increase. So that's further watering down the solvency of Medicare. And that's Democrats doing that. But let's look at what the Republicans have done. First thing was, I mentioned, uh, starting this whole mess by putting 20% of the uh, Medicare seniors on a privatized plan, which has actually been more costly and less effective. Second thing was Medicare Part D, which was the prescription drug plan. And what people don't realize, and this is what I always, when I get into debates with Republicans and we don't want a government health care program, they passed a much more massive program than the Affordable Care Act. And you didn't hear anyone on the right talk about that. But that's what I think the left needs to constantly bang them over the head and say, Medicare Part D is much more expensive on a yearly basis than the Affordable Care Act was. And what that was was, quote, a, a plan to give seniors a prescription drug benefit. What did we find out from that? It was initially started by a Republican House and Senate, uh, and Billy Towson was the lead author on that. Where's he these days? He's now the president of Pharma, which is the, the, the uh, largest lobbying group for big pharma. Uh, making more than $2 million a year is that p position. Talk about a revolving door. So he negotiates this and then becomes head of pharma. So that, that's what Billy Towson did. It was signed into plan. What it does is it prevents Medicare from negotiating bulk prices on drugs. As a result, we're spending about 60% more on drugs than uh, per capita than they are in Canada on our seniors. Right. And, and when Obama first proposed Obamacare, who was the first group he made a deal with? Billy Towson. He was in the door, and they were the ones that said, we'll give a couple hundred million dollars so that you can air ads that will be favorable to your legislation as long as you don't allow them to touch the, the existing plan, uh, the, the deals we have with, with uh, the big pharma. So the drug companies support Obamacare. They were in on it from day one. Correct. The health insurance companies? They were, they, on one hand, they were against it, and then on the other hand, they were in it. And here's the thing that people don't realize. So there are 535 members of Congress. There were over 3,300 registered health care lobbyists. So roughly six uh, lobbyists for every member of Congress, and they were spending $1.2 million a day. More was spent lobbying for health care than was on the entire Bush carry election. And that's why the bill, as you mentioned, looks like it was written by the private insurance industry. Say that again. More money was spent lobbying for uh, the Affordable Care Act uh, so that it would be favorable that there would be no public option and all of those things than was spent on the entire Bush-Kerry election. Wow. Yeah. And that's why the bill looks like it was written by the private insurance industry. And that's always been the ding on... On the on on the legislation is that it, it it's really I've always heard it's it was crafted by the insurance com insurance industry and now hearing the specifics it seems that that's the case absolutely and I think that again so we have to look at 
the good things that are there that maybe the insurance industry didn't want, which was the lifetime caps, as I mentioned, and no rescissions and pre-existing conditions. But in the end, out of that 800 plus billion dollars, it's estimated 475 billion is going to go to the private insurance industry. Say that again. What? But out of the you know the total b- cost of the Affordable Care Act is eight hundred plus billion dollars. Right. It's estimated that roughly four hundred and seventy five billion dollars of that will actually go, in terms of subsidies and such, to the private insurance industry. But not as profits. No, no. But that's money that's going to be used uh, to go buy their product. Okay. So where else do you see the government taking tax dollars to subsidize people to go buy? Um, a product from an unethical and moral industry that only profits by denying people care. The average price for basic health coverage purchased on health insurance exchanges created by President Obama's health care reform law. And it's not just Obama's health care reform law, but it's whatever. Will be $249 a month, not counting subsidies in 48 st- states reviewed by the Department of Health and Human Services. I believe this comes in like 16% lower than they thought. Uh, the prices will vary widely by geographic location as well as family size, age, tobacco use, and income, writes Jeffrey Young at HuffPo. The average price of a bronze plan, understand that in the exchanges, now again, you are eligible for the exchanges if you do not get a low-cost plan from your employer or your union. The price of a bronze plan, and they come in, Platinum, silver, platinum, gold, silver, and bronze, I believe. The bronze plan, which is designed to cover 60% of medical expenses, not counting monthly premiums, uh, has a big variation. The average price of the cheapest bronze plan, bronze plan in Minnesota is 144 bucks a month. In Wyoming, it's 425 It's a function of how many people are in the risk pool. For the people who are currently uninsured and who qualify for financial assistance or enrollment in Medicaid, the federal state health program for the poor, the average price looks to be low. 56% of uninsured will be able to get coverage for less than $100 per month per person. A 27-year-old in Dallas who earns 25000 a year will be able to purchase a bronze plan for $74 a month. That includes the federal tax credits. Family four in Dallas with a $50,000 household income could get a bronze plan for as little as 26 a month, including the subsidies. A family of four earning 50 a year purchasing the least expensive bronze plan, which is not, uh, which is the least expensive of the plans, would pay 36 a month in Charlotte. The cheapest silver plan 
on 36 state-based health insurance exchanges are 16% lower. Okay, it's the silver plan that are 16% lower than originally projected. For some people who already buy their own insurance, it will rise above today's level because of the added value to these plans. In other words, you get a guaranteed uh, minimum benefits package, which could be greater than yours as it exists. You can't charge, they can't charge women more than men. There are limits on how uh, much older people should pay, and so that gets factored in. So if you are healthier and younger, and you're buying on the exchanges, your, your prices may go up, but less than 4% of people who currently have health insurance are covered in such, uh, are by their insurance directly. So we're talking about a small amount of people will have to pay a little bit more, but by the time they die, because they will get older, they will end up having paid less as they get older. And presumably if they end up having a family, it will also be less. I know there's some libertarians out there who they don't, they don't get older. Now, I don't understand everything you're saying here. There's a lot of numbers, but I will just say it sounds like communism. There you go. Touche. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm with Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. NBC's Chuck Todd took heat for seeming to suggest it wasn't reporters' job to correct misunderstandings about the Affordable Care Act. Most people sense it's an issue that calls out for clarification among competing claims. NBC's Meet the Press host, David Gregory, almost seemed to be responding to that on September 22nd, but his clarification effort was a little unclear. Hosting a debate between Democrat Representative Barbara Lee, who spoke of children getting care who previously could not, and lower premiums, and Republican Marsha Blackburn, who spoke of millions losing insurance and premiums going through the roof, Gregory at one point intervened. Let me inject a point of fact here. He followed with the true but not overly helpful idea that premiums have gone up in some states and are coming down in other states if they have exchanges. And he went on. 
Here are some of the headlines this week. A couple pro, a couple con here. Reuters, Cleveland Clinic announces job cuts to prepare for Obamacare. Bloomberg, GE, IBM ending retiree health plans in an historic shift. USA Today, health care for 100 bucks a month. Yes, really, that is possible. The South Florida Sun Sentinel, Obamacare cuts costs. So there is vulnerability because it is unpopular, and but there is not a... A fact pattern that you could say is a singular fact pattern in terms of the impact of Obamacare yet. It's not wrong to point to varied impacts of policy or confusion over it, but a list of headlines is not an analysis. There may not be a singular fact pattern, but there are facts, and Gregory's intervention sounds like the broader media trend of reducing fact-checking to saying everyone's got a point. That's balanced, but not very useful. President Obama is trying to laugh off the last uh, opposition to the Affordable Care Act actually going into practice. Whether you believe that he's actually that calm about it or not, um, he, he has some context for us. And so he's going to look back to how Reagan originally uh, opposed some similar programs and how he came around. So first, uh, President Obama. You know, we may not get that same level of cooperation from Republicans right now. But the good news is, I believe eventually they'll come around. Because Medicare and Social Security faced the same kind of criticism. Before Medicare came into law, one Republican warned that one of these days you and I are going to spend our sunset years telling our children and our children's children what it once was like in America when men were free. That was Ronald Reagan. And eventually Ronald Reagan came around to Medicare and thought it was pretty good and actually helped make it better. So uh, there, uh, President Obama is referring to uh, back in the 60s, Reagan's initial opposition. Um, we actually have some vintage Reagan audio for you. Uh, it's going to be pretty awesome. So uh, we've got two different sections, him talking uh, back in 1961. Let's listen. This threat is with us and at the moment is more imminent. One of the traditional methods of imposing statism or socialism on a people has been by way of medicine. It's very easy to disguise a medical program as a humanitarian project. Most people are a little reluctant to oppose anything that suggests medical care for people who possibly can't afford it. So with the American people on record as not wanting socialized medicine, Congressman Ferrand introduced the Ferrand Bill. This was the idea that all people of Social Security age should be brought under a program of compulsory health insurance. Now, Congressman Ferrand brought the program out on that idea of just for that particular group of people. But Congressman Ferrand was subscribing to this foot-in-the-door philosophy because he said, if we can only break through and get our foot inside the door, then we can expand the program after that. Now, what reason 
could the other people have for backing a bill which says we insist on compulsory health insurance for senior citizens on a basis of age alone, regardless of whether they are worth millions of dollars, whether they have an income, whether they're protected by their own insurance, whether they have savings. I think we could be excused for believing that, as ex-Congressman Ferran said, this was simply an excuse to bring about what they wanted all the time, socialized medicine. And, of course, uh, eventually most Republicans at least need to pretend that they're in favor, you know, of uh, Medicare, Medicaid. Reagan eventually, uh, you, you were implying that he, he had... That's Cobra. Cobra, exactly. That was, his, and so, uh, that was his legislation. Exactly. And some other expansions. Uh, and so uh, President Obama feels like that is, that's what happened with Social Security, that's what happened with Medicare and Medicaid, and he uh, believes that eventually it will happen with Obamacare as well. So uh, one final video, we're going to go to video two, uh, talking about what he thinks will eventually happen once people understand what's actually in the Affordable Care Act. And once it's working really well, I guarantee you, they will not call it Obamacare. <laughs> Here's, here, here, here is a prediction for you. A few years from now, when people are using this to get coverage and uh, everybody's feeling pretty good about all the choices and competition that they've got. There are going to be a whole bunch of folks who say, yeah, yeah, no, I, I always thought this provision was excellent. I, I voted. I voted for that thing. <laughs> wow. You watch. I think he's probably right there. Yeah, so uh, I, there's so much I love there. First of all, on Reagan. They, they always disguise the socialist dictatorship in the form of humanitarian programs meant to help the humans. <laughs> and hey, it's easy to say in a democracy, hey, maybe we should help people who are dying. That gets a lot of votes. Yeah, maybe you should. Yeah, it's, like, <laughs> it's, like, it's not a bad thing. People are always, uh, the thing we got, Jimmy, people are always hesitant to oppose a program that will help uh, people get medical coverage, especially if they're sick and can't afford it. <laughs> yeah, 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 that's right. yeah, yeah. Or so perhaps we should do that. And we did, and then it was massively and wildly popular. And Medicare recently, in a poll, they asked people, would you cut Medicare under any circumstance? 84% of Americans said, we would not cut it under any circumstance. I don't care what your other thing is. Well, but if you don't, we can't go to war. If you don't, we can't do this. We can't do that. No, no, no. I don't care what you think. It's not that it's 84% popularity. It's that 84% of Americans say, do not touch it under any goddamn circumstance. And so Reagan apparently was right. All across America, they're now saying that goddamn Congressman Ferran. That <laughs> <laughs> is stupid, Bill. He damned us all. Damned us all. We're no longer free. He did say that they're not going to call it Obamacare, which is correct. I didn't think it's about totally that. True. But it's totally true because they don't call Medicare LBJ care. Mm -hmm. And they don't call Social Security FDR retirement. You know what I mean? They, they took their names away from it as soon as possible because people do like it. And so that's yeah. how you'll know when they're finally giving up. And that, yes. They'll stop referring when they stop to referring that. Yeah. To Obama. Let me, one more thing, sure, if sure. I can, Ben. Let me just say this. And, you know, we worry about Medicare, and I worry about Medicare from the Democrats, right? Because uh, David Frum made the point that they will never defund Medicare because the party that defunds Medicare will be immediately thrown out of power. 
And I kind of agree with that. So that kind of gives me uh, solace. And I'm, no, I'm, no, no. That's why they're going to make the Democrats. That's why they're going to yeah. make the Democrats. That's what I think. Yeah, you're right. Okay, so I feel <laughs> shitty again. Thank Thanks. You. No worries. Anytime. Yeah, welcome back. <laughs> I've been complaining. We got some <laughs> figures on it. John does here about the public responds better to the Affordable Care Act than they do Obamacare. And during the campaign, the because it was the signature piece of legislation for the president, the that would be the kind way to look at it. Even the Democrats, even the Obama administration in the campaign insisted on calling it Obamacare, even though that had a negative connotation for voters, whereas the Affordable Care Act, let alone the specifics of the bill, were enormously popular. Mm -hmm. Now that they still call it Obamacare, uh, I find it just flat out irritating. Like, call it the Affordable Care Act, stop calling it Obamacare, except for the fact that I think he's right, it will be an enormous part of his legacy, and he don't want to call it anything except Obamacare, or I fear that that's the reason. Because when he's it, proud of it. Because he's yeah. proud of it, right. Yeah. And, and he wants to say, look, I'm historic. Right, that's right. You know, there's Medicare, and then there was Obamacare, Obamacare right? Which is a bummer, mm -hmm. because yeah. you should call it whatever helps it succeed right now. One question I get a lot from listeners has to do with how long it takes me to make an episode of Best of the Left. Well, between all the research, show prep, and actual editing, it comes out to around 20 hours of work for each one of the 10 episodes I make every month. Obviously, this is only possible because of the listeners who chip in a few bucks each month to make it happen. So if you appreciate this show and think it provides a valuable service, then please think about becoming a member at the $10 a month level. That's only a buck a show, after all. I've always believed in giving away the show for free so everyone can hear it without restriction. So if you can afford 10 bucks a month, that covers yourself and several others who maybe can't afford to pay but who need to hear the show as much as anyone. As thanks, members also receive bonus content including extra voicemails, behind-the-scenes stories, and more of my personal musings. Thanks so much for your support. Earlier this week, we talked about how the official launch of Obamacare was marred by web glitches and long delays. But there was another major obstacle to Obamacare's implementation, total dickishness. <laughs> you see, Obamacare, for all its well-documented issues and problems, is still a well-intentioned attempt to get people who have not had health insurance in this country, health insurance. Medicaid has traditionally covered people up to this income level. Obamacare was going to cover them uh, ostensibly down to this income level. So there's going to be like a little, a little gap there, about the size of an iPad, except instead of an iPad, it's uh, about 8 million people living just above the poverty line. So to provide health insurance for this nation's, you know, that creamy center, the federal government was going to give the state governments money to expand their Medicaid program. For three years, the states would pay uh, for this program. I think the number was... Uh, Zero. <laughs> then after that, they would pay up to 10%, I think, by the time it was uh, 2020. So uh, what a great deal. But wouldn't you know it? 26 states declined to go to that expense. <laughs> 26 states? Holy f***. That's like a third of... <laughs> a little more than... 26 states! <laughs> It must be a pretty eclectic group with many different reasons to explain why they would turn down federal money to bring health care to their working poor. Or maybe there was just one reason. All of those states have Republican governors or legislatures that are controlled by Republicans. 
<laughs> Which makes it really hard not to see this as just the latest example of that hit game show sweeping part of the nation. What do you hate more, poverty or Obama? <laughs> Brought to you by Spite. Spite! The emotion that makes you turn down millions of dollars that would go towards health care for the working poor because you hate the president. And Arby's. Arby's! Technically, it's food. Now, of course, I imagine... Of course, I imagine that the, the states when asked why they didn't accept the Medicaid expansion, don't probably list spite as the answer. So, so let's see what their reason is. Uh, you there, governor of the state in this nation that has the most uninsured children out of any other state. Medicaid expansion is, simply put, a misguided and ultimately doomed attempt to uh, mass the shortcomings of Obamacare. To expand this program is not unlike uh, adding a thousand people to the Titanic. <laughs> That's true. That's true. That's really true. If the Titanic had crashed into a hospital. <laughs> but hey, you know what? Everything's bigger in Texas, especially tumors. What about you, Mississippi? You, Mississippi, or as you're also known, the 49th healthiest state in the Union, Mississippi. Of all the states in the country that should be embracing some of the changes coming from Obamacare, your critics would say Mississippi should be at the front of the list. Peter, the problem is it is the worst system of delivering health care known to man. No, it's not. <laughs> Listen, it's not perfect. A lot of things we'd like to change, but it is not the worst system of delivering health care known to man. As anybody knows who's been a patient at Enema Hut. Enema Hut. Because there ain't nothing wrong with you that can't be cured by some rectal irrigation. Now you're probably thinking, John, this is so abstract with these numbers. Can you show me what you're talking about? Maybe with an example from the show me state, Missouri. 45-year-old Bertha McIntyre needs daily medication. She does not qualify for Medicaid in Missouri because her family income is too high, about $1,200 a month. Well, ain't she fancy? <laughs> what with her clothes and shelter? <laughs> See, that woman is considered too rich for Medicaid, but too poor for the Obamacare subsidies to have an effect. Yeah, that's how much sense this all makes. So why not expand Medicaid, Missouri? Republican State Senator John Lamping argues Missouri faces tough choices. The entire cost of Medicaid in Missouri is one-third of Missouri's budget. We can barely afford to be in the Medicaid program as it exists today. Boy, that is a tough choice. Should we, as a state, accept 100% of this program's expansion costs from the federal government for the first three years? Or, I don't know, But it is a tough choice. What, what are some of the tough choices your citizens are making? Am I going to take food out of a child's stomach or am I going to do without going to the doctor? Which would you choose? And here's the best part. These governors and legislators who refuse to accept federal dollars to expand Medicaid for people like that nice lady, all but three 
of those 26 states they represent already take more money from the federal government than they contribute in tax dollars. They are already burdens on the systems. I believe they're referred to uh, by those Republicans as moochers, moocher states. And if statehood was health care, Mississippi and Missouri would be rejected as having that as a pre-existing condition. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, so what do these uninsured people do for health care? Well, Republicans actually had that covered in the last presidential election. Not sure how that worked out. Well, we do provide care for people who don't have insurance. People, uh, we, if someone has a heart attack, they don't sit in their apartment and, and die. We, we pick them up in an ambulance and take them to the hospital and give them care. Historical footnote is right. <laughs> you can always go to the emergency room. You can always go to the emergency room when you're having a heart attack. And apparently they think that's the fiscally responsible option rather than expanding Medicaid. Because unlike Obamacare, we all know ER visits are free. <laughs> Just one little problem. When the uninsured end up here in the ER, their costs are passed on to paying customers. That means insurance companies end up paying more, so they raise rates, and fewer people can afford health insurance. The impact to our hospital district is $52 million a year. Had we expanded Medicaid, we would have got that $52 million from the federal government. Instead, we're getting it from local taxpayers. Got it? Medical care for the uninsured has already ballooned the cost of the system. This is an attempt to gain control of those costs. So if you have a better answer, Republicans, let's hear it. But don't make your plan, what do we need food stamps for, when we already have Dine and Dash. And now to the people who refuse to let democracy work. The people who hate government so much, they've shut it down. Unable to abide by the results of democracy when they don't win, they turned on it. Republicans have now lost three successive elections to control the Senate, and they've lost the last two presidential elections. Nonetheless, they fought tooth and nail to kill President Obama's health care initiative. They lost that fight, but with the corporate wing of Democrats, they managed to bend it toward private interests. So we should be clear on this. Obamacare, as it's known, is deeply flawed. Big subsidies to the health insurance industry, a bonanza for lobbyists, no public option. And as the New York Times reported this week, millions of poor are left uncovered by health law, largely because states controlled by Republicans refuse to expand Medicaid. As far as our bought-and-paid-for legislative process goes, Obama's initiative made it through the sausage factory. Yet, even after both the House and Senate approved it, the President signed it, and the Supreme Court upheld it, the Republicans keep insisting on calling the law a bill, thumbing their noses and refusing to accept 
that it is enacted legislation. And now they're fighting to prevent it from being implemented. Here was their order of the day on Thursday from the popular right-wing blog, redstate.com. Congressman, this is about shutting down Obamacare. Democrats keep talking about our refusal to compromise. They don't realize our compromise is defunding Obamacare. We actually want to repeal it. This is it. Our end game is to leave the whole thing shut down until the president defunds Obamacare. And if he does not defund Obamacare, we leave the whole thing shut down. Once upon a time, when I was a young man working on Capitol Hill, it was commonplace that when a bill became law, everybody was unhappy with it. But you didn't bring down the government just because it wasn't perfect. You argue and fight and vote and then due process, having been at least raggedly served, on to the next fight. That was a long time ago, long before the Tea Party minority, armed with huge sums of secret money from rich donors, sucked the last bit of soul from the grand old party of Abraham Lincoln. They became delusional, then rabid, like this. If Obamacare is ever implemented and enforced, we will never recover from it. It is an unconstitutional takings of God-given American liberty. That's false, of course just like those right-wing talking points that keep grinding through the propaganda mills of Fox News. Thanks to Obamacare, doctors will be forced to ask patients about their sex life, even if it has nothing to do with the medical treatment that they are seeking at the time. Not true. That health care plan um, puts a discount on the lives of elderly people and would result in the redistribution of health away from the elderly and the, and the infirm to other special favored interests and in patients. Again, not true. Nor is this from the multi-millionaire fabulist Rush Limbaugh. What we now have is the biggest tax increase in the history of the world. Obamacare is just a massive tax increase. That's all it is. That's just a tiny sample of the lies and misinformation perpetrated by the right with the song and dance compliance of its richly paid mouthpieces. Sarah Palin set the bar for truth at about ankle height with those fictitious death panels that she still insists will decide our rendezvous with the Grim Reaper. Of course there are death panels in there, but uh, the important thing to remember is that's just one aspect of this atrocious, unaffordable, uh, cumbersome, burdensome, evil policy of Obama's, and that is Obamacare. Despite what they say, Obamacare is only one of their targets. Before they will allow the government to reopen, they demand employers be enabled to deny birth control coverage to female employees. They demand Obama cave on the Keystone Pipeline. They demand the watchdogs over corporate pollution be muzzled and the big bad regulators of Wall Street sent home. Their ransom list goes on and on. The debt ceiling is next. They would have the government default on its obligations and responsibilities. When the president refused to buckle to their extortion, they threw their tantrum, like the diehards of the racist South a century and a half ago who would destroy the Union before giving up their slaves. So would these people burn the place down, sink the ship of state, and sow economic chaos to get their way. This says it all. They even shuttered the Statue of Liberty. Watching all this from London, the noted commentator Martin Wolf of the capitalist-friendly Financial Times says, 
America flirts with self-destruction. This man is the biggest flirt of all, Newt Gingrich. It was Newt Gingrich who 20 years ago spearheaded the right wing's virulent crusade against the norms of democratic government. As Speaker of the House, he twice brought about shutdowns of the federal government. Once, believe it or not, because he felt snubbed after riding on Air Force One with President Clinton and had to leave by the back door. It was also Newt Gingrich, Speaker Gingrich, who was caught lying to congressional investigators looking into charges of his ethical wrongdoing. His colleagues voted overwhelmingly, 395 to 28, to reprimand him. Pressure from his own party then prompted him to resign. Yet even after his flame-out, even after his recent bizarre race for the presidency, bankrolled with money from admiring oligarchs, even after new allegations about his secret fundraising for right-wing candidates, Gingrich remains the darling of a fawning, amnesic media. I'm Newt Gingrich on the right. On CNN.com the other day, he issued a call to arms to his fellow bomb throwers. Don't cave on shutdown. At least let's name this for what it is. Sabotage of the democratic process. Secession by another means. And let's be clear about where such reckless ambition leads. As surely as night must follow day, the alternative to democracy is worse. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make the show possible. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, the number to dial is 202-999-3991. There are a lot of messages to get to today, so I'm going to comment on them as we go. Let's get started. Hey, Jay, this is Dane from Chicago. I've been following the discussion about GMOs pretty closely, but your last comment made me want to disappointed enough that I had to call in. I generally like your commentary, but I think you may have a blind spot for Mr. Hightower, whose paper was so full of weasel words and logical fallacies that I thought I was listening to a climate science denier or an anti-vaxxer. 24D may have been an Agent Orange, but it's dishonest and misleading to imply it as guilty by association. Water was a point of was a part of Agent Orange too, and to imply that it causes cancer by saying that the evidence simply isn't in yet. It makes an end run around the scientific method by simply asserting danger and then trying to scare your listeners when no evidence for that exists. You use the word toxic in the same fear-mongering way. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that monocultures and millions of square miles of Roundup-ready crops don't come with cost. But can we at least be responsible in our rhetoric and our research and not resort to throwing around loaded terms and implying danger where none has been shown? I'm personally in medicine, and your rant centered almost exactly like the folks who don't want to vaccinate their children because of the quote-unquote toxic additives in vaccines. Frankly, I see all forms of science denial as being fundamentally the same. You're accepting fear and unproven hypotheses over all the research that's been done by chemists and biologists on 2,4-D. I frankly expected better from you. I'm not, I'm personally averse to many of our farming methods in this country, but it's because I don't like that monoculture is killing our bees. 
bad for bees is not by extension necessarily bad for humans. And for as much as you wanted to back off your assertion that GMOs are dangerous to humans, you then cited an author who's not nearly as responsible or careful in his rhetoric as he should have been. And I think it made you look irresponsible by proxy. But I think most importantly, it's important to point out that labeling GMOs won't fix any of these problems. Spreading fear and misinformation and then asking the general population to make up their own minds after they've been fed weasel words and misinformation from Mr. Hightower is frankly the wrong approach. It's like to teach the controversy tactic used by the creationists. This doesn't raise awareness, it raises fear. Let's let those, those tactics stay on the right. Thank you very much. Love the show. The thing that I disagree most fervently with this caller about was his claim that I have a blind eye towards Jim Hightower. And the fact is, I don't. I actually have a problem with his writing and speaking style sort of a lot of the time. Uh, I like the points he's trying to make. I often don't like the way he chooses to make them. Uh, just as a quick example, you know, the, the caller mentioned all sorts of different sort of, you know, as he said, weasel words and things like that in the, in the article. At the very beginning of the article, he actually refers to and then puts in quotes, Agent Orange Corn. And I specifically skipped over that paragraph in the beginning because, like, it, it was too much to bear. I couldn't say or, uh, Agent Orange Corn. That's obviously ridiculous and, um, you know, and, and a, something that a person says with the intention of scaring people. And I, I hate that. So the reason why I read the article was because, you know, as I sort of prefaced as I read the article, that his main point was not about the direct health implications to people. It was about the indirect health implications and, and, and what these sort of agricultural practices do in that sort of way. So, you know, I, I read it because I like his central thesis and I, you know, actually agree with the caller that, you know, when he strayed from his central thesis, uh, I had problems with those too. And, you know, I, the caller's probably right. I should have edited the, the article and only read the parts that were exactly relevant to the point I was trying to make. So I'll, I'll, I'll take, uh, I'll take a beating for that. Uh, however, when the caller commented on uh, the bees, he said, you know, I, he doesn't like monoculture because it's bad for the bees, but what's bad for the bees isn't bad for people. That actually sort of highlights the the very specific point I'm trying to make, which is there are two different ways to do damage to people. One is directly by like poisoning them, and that's what a lot of people think of when they think of GMOs. Are they directly bad for us or not directly bad for us? And what I'm saying is that it's not about that. And actually, the way I'm defining doing damage to people, what's bad for bees is by definition bad for people because we depend on the bees to pollinate the food that we eat. So I just wanted to clarify that that is the central thesis that I'm trying to drive home and was and was trying to drive home with Jim Hightower's uh, highly imperfect article. Hey, Jay, this is Bill in Fredericksburg, Virginia. I'm calling in response to the seemingly polarizing discussion on GMOs, and I think that I can offer an argument that will provide some common ground. People with opinions on GMOs seem to fall into one of two camps. The GMO skeptics claim that research on the effect of GMOs on humans is incomplete and that humans shouldn't be playing God, while the proponents point to the benefits of increased food production and accuse the skeptics of an anti-science bias. I just want to chime in here really quick to say that I don't know if what he just said is true, that those are the two main camps of GMO debaters. 
but if it is true, that highlights the problem that I think there is. Although I have my doubts, I think that those who are you know, skeptical of GMOs, probably a fair number of them are that way because of the agricultural implications and not, not necessarily the direct health implications for people, as discussed just a moment ago. But if that's true and that does represent the two main oppositional groups in this discussion, then that really highlights the problem I see with this debate. And I certainly don't count myself as a member of either of those groups. Absent from the conversation is the social justice and economic argument against GMOs in the wrong hands, which you alluded to on your last show in your closing comments, but which really deserves a fuller discussion. I have family in Iowa who are directly affected by this issue, so I'm going to use Monsanto's Roundup-ready corn as the case study here. There are two features that have been programmed into the genetic code of Roundup Ready Corn. The first is the resistance to Monsanto-manufactured herbicide Roundup, and the second is the inability to germinate the so-called Terminator gene. You talked about the impact the purchase of this seed has on sales of Roundup and how this generates additional revenue for the company, but the inability to germinate guarantees long-term sales of the seed to the detriment of corn farmers. By removing the ability of a farmer to keep a portion of their harvest for the next year's planting season, this modification creates a cycle of dependency between the farmer who needs to plant a crop and the company that produces the seed. More than the desire to provide a healthier product, this is one of the major influences on farmers who choose to plant heritage strains of corn. They only have to buy the seed one time rather than make an annual deposit into the coffers of Monsanto. This characteristic, however, has been created among many different crops and can be achieved through hybridization just as easily as it can through genetic manipulation. At least farmers have a choice, right? Well, here's the thing about plants. They reproduce through pollination. Corn pollen is carried by the wind, and especially in areas where one field abuts another, there is significant cross-pollination. In other words, if farmer Amanda decides to plant Monsanto seed, but her neighbor, Farmer Joel, plants a heritage strain, Genetic material in the form of pollen will inevitably make its way from Farmer Amanda's field into the crop that Farmer Joel has planted. Can Farmer Joel just not harvest the corn near his property line? Aside from the hit Joel would take to his grain sales come harvest time, he'd also better ensure that he gets to it before Monsanto's field inspectors. Because every genetic modification created by Monsanto or Dow Chemical or any of the other producers of GMO seed is patented. Monsanto has the track record of sending out inspectors to fields adjacent to those owned by farmers who planted GMO seed. The inspectors are looking for evidence of the patented genome. If found, the company lawyers citing a large body of case law will sue the farmer for patent infringement, essentially accusing them of using a corporate-owned form of life without paying for it. From Farmer Joel's perspective, that crop invaded his property, but if he makes that claim, he's admitting to having it on his property and will likely have to pay a hefty fine. If he chooses to fight the case, his legal fees will quickly deplete his cash reserves, and in either case, he runs the risk of losing his farm due to the financial burden. Amanda from Chicago was horrified that we, should, we would consider labeling a form of life. How much more offensive is it that a company can claim ownership of the same? In the right hands, genetically modified crops such as golden rice can have a net positive impact on humanity since they don't create a cycle of dependency to purchase new seed every year, and there's no interest in using the legal system to protect profitability. In the wrong hands, however, this science can be and is used to fuel the transfer of wealth from independent farmers to mega corporations with little to no philanthropic interests. That's about it. Thanks for providing a forum for this conversation, and keep up the good work. Hi, Jay. It's Amanda again from Chicago. I am confused why you would think that labeling GMOs um, as GMOs would raise awareness about specific corporate problems, specific corporate abuses of organisms. Uh, labeling GMOs as GMOs would be like 
I mean, that would be like trying to raise awareness of the dangers of Tylenol by labeling every medicine bottle with, uh, this bottle may contain substances that were chemically manufactured. My point in reacting so strongly to this desire to label all GMOs as GMOs is that you're a resisting or or insisting on reducing organisms to their methods of conception but also b that you are not raising awareness or spreading information uh, but rather focusing on uh, fearful labels Uh, and the label gmo is a political label that is uh, trying to raise suspicion and fear of the way things are conceived and born, the way living things are conceived and born. Genetic modification is a method of conception. It does not tell anything about what the organism actually is. It only tells how the organism was made. Uh, We've gone down that road in our history quite a bit, and it's never led to good things. Thanks. Bye. I'll take these one at a time. So first of all, how can labels possibly lead to greater awareness on relevant issues surrounding GMOs? Well, my answer to that is actually painfully simple. Why don't we just make labels that actually convey useful information? You know, based on what we've already heard today, for instance, product contains GMO food that has been modified to be highly resistant to herbicides. Or this product contains GMO food that has been modified to resist multiple generational germination or something like that. Uh, Or even on the positive side, this product contains GMO food that has been modified to increase vitamin A levels. Hey, that sounds good. And so then anyone as an informed consumer can then choose, hey, I don't want to buy the food that doesn't uh, germinate multiple generations, causing the farmers to have to buy the seeds over and over again each year. I've got one more comment, but uh, first I'm just going to play just a, a quick clip of Amanda's previous message, just for better context. Genetic modification is simply a means of conception. A genetically modified organism, just like a baby made in an IVF petri dish, is a life. Think about potential future consequences for legislation like this, Jay. I know GMO science-denying people are trying to stem what they see as the tides of some futurist dystopia where children are made in factories, but guess what? That future is here. How do we respond? Do we respond with fear? Do we slap a label on children that we fear might taint our natural children? Do we make it illegal for natural children to marry GMO children? Frankly, I wish I could resist uh, responding to this entire line of reasoning, but I, I, I just can't. It's too, I, I find it too crazy to be allowed to stand and, and, and go unanswered. And so to be clear, I, I don't know where Amanda's coming from. I, I have two theories. Uh, the, her two primary focuses have been that, you know, food is food. Organisms are organisms. You know, people are organisms. Plants and animals are organisms. If they're modified, they're still just life. We're all life. And so from that perspective, it could be the sort of, you know, we're all the same, you know, cosmic equality sort of idea. I've definitely had people call into the show before when discussing food and talk about how, you know, all hey, animals may have central nervous systems, but plants feel pain too. And like there's this line of thinking out there. And maybe she's coming from that perspective. On the other hand, 
there's a lot of focus on how you know we start labeling people and that leads to bad things and she you know mentioned that uh, you know do we start dividing up the people and and making them second class citizens and she mentioned in her uh, in her newest message that we've gone down this road many times in our history and it's never ended well so let's cut to the chase we're talking about a fear of the holocaust right we're talking about eugenics we're talking about you know putting people in camps i mean we might as well be and I have to say, labeling food as genetically modified organisms to allow people to know that food may have been altered by corporations in ways that hurt ag- agricultural practices uh, and, and all of the things we've been talking about. The idea that labeling those things will lead to eugenics or or a holocaust or just a second-class citizenry is, is as absurd, I think, as the idea that, you know, gay marriage leads to bestiality like it's so it's the slippery slope argument but the slope like you can't even see the end of the slope from where we are right now we're so far away from that remotest of possibilities that worrying about it at this point i find absurd and it completely ignores the point that there is zero motivation for people to want to create a second-class citizenry from children born through in vitro fertilization. There, there's no movement or motivation for that in the same way that there's no movement to be allowed to marry animals. Now, if she's coming from the camp of all organisms should be treated equally and, you know, a, a carrot is no different than a, a human, then, like, I've come to terms with the fact that people have that belief system. I'm okay with people believing that all i ask is that people who believe those sorts of things recognize that they are in a profound minority and that we are centuries away from the rest of the population coming anywhere near adopting that line of thinking and so that said plants and people simply have different rights in our society and just because we uh, label a food as genetically modified or not has no bearing on a human's right to you know, not have the law decide that they need to be branded in some way and forced into second-class citizenry and so on. So with that issue put to rest, in my mind at least, uh, here are a couple other callers who have their own thoughts on why labeling is important. Hi, this is Denny from Indiana, and I was calling about the GMO debate as well. I was mind-boggled about the idea of comparing wanting to know what's in the food that you're going to put in your body or in your child's body, comparing that to labeling petri dish children as GMO children. That's insane. I'm allergic to peanuts. I, I look on a package to see if there's peanuts in that package. Does that mean peanuts are bad? No. It means I don't want them in my body for my own reasons. I also don't want to feed my child something that's been modified in a lab never had any long-term testing, despite what Monsanto wants to say. And I have no objection to the idea of, but there's children in China who aren't going to get enough IMA. All they can eat, all they have is rice. This company has done a non-profit, fixed the problem for them. That's great. That's good use of science. Monsanto using modifications so that they can have to use their pesticides, keep farmers from using their own seeds. I'm not okay with that. I don't want to support that. If I can't afford to buy something in organic or being in the air, that the thing I want isn't available organically. 
I should have the option of knowing this is GMO, this is not, so that I can make an informed decision about what I want to do. And that's all we're asking for is just knowledge so that we can make informed decisions. And it's a little creepy that Monsanto and other GMO loving corporations are trying to keep us from doing that. That should set up a re set up a red flag in anybody's mind that maybe there's a problem here. That's just my opinion. Thanks. Hi, my name is Morgan. I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I just wanted to call about the GMO thing. People are bringing up the science. I don't care what the science is. I don't care if a GMO gives me every nutrient I could possibly need. I still deserve to know that it is a GMO. And to the woman who said, oh, well, test tube babies are GMOs, that's not true. When you add a sperm and an egg, that's a baby. And besides, that woman knew that was a test tube baby before she put it into her body. Nothing about the science takes away from the fact that I deserve to know what I am putting into my body before I put it in there. I don't want to be anyone's guinea pig. Thank you. Bye-bye. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks especially to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by donating your accounts at donateyouraccount.com slash bestoftheleft. Stay tuned into the show by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past our own sad stories and 